You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Yes? I'm trying to find a gentleman doll. Me too, me too. Do you have any more in the back? <laughs> what? These guys are looking for a turbo man? A gentleman <laughs> dog, yes. <laughs> They're looking for turbo man. <laughs> hey, everybody, these two are looking for a turbo man. Shut up, man. Now, what's so funny? Where have you guys been? Turbo Man's only the hottest selling Christmas toy ever. Uh. <laughs> you know what? We got plenty of Turbo Man's faithful saber tooth partner booster. Where's your Christmas spirit? That's better. Now, there must be a Turbo Man around here somewhere. Oh. The last one just left. Um, some lady had it on layaway. A lady? Yeah. What lady? Uh, uh, just a short, uh, with, with a fur coat. Fur coat. Fur coat. Uh-huh. Fur Sorry, coat. buddy. Oh. <laughs> Give me this. Hey! This is war. Jingle All The Way fans in the room? Nice. Yeah, we got a few. If you're a 90s kid, this is probably a staple growing up for you. Uh, I wanted to bring up this clip and start our time together with this clip for two main reasons. One, I think we all need to remember the incredible acting chops of Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? <laughs> Just pouring forth from the screen here. Um, no, in all seriousness, the, the real reason I wanted to bring this up is uh, a line of dialogue that Arnold delivers in this scene. Uh, it's when he picks up the two uh, workers at the store. He says, where's your Christmas spirit, right? I'm not going to try to do an Arnold impression. I wish I could give you a good one, but I can't. So you won't get that this morning, but it's for your own good, I promise. Where's your Christmas spirit? That's what he says. And that line is dripping with irony, right? See, Christmas spirit is one of those things that when we think of that idea, it conjures up togetherness, peace and joy and contentment. And Arnold shows none of those things in this scene, and none of those things throughout much of the movie, if you're familiar with it. He's uh, caring only about his own needs at this point. He's not caring about the needs of others around him. He's prioritizing people as a means to his end. He doesn't see them as people to be loved or cared for. He's obsessing over impressing his son by getting the right toy, this Turbo Man action figure. And perhaps more than anything, he's lost in a consumeristic shuffle. It's telling him that if he just gets the right thing, then, then he'll have the Christmas spirit. Then he'll have real joy and peace. And so he'll do whatever he has to do. He'll elbow people, he'll lift people up, he'll run RC cars into people in order to get what he wants. And that's the same rhythm every year that our culture tends to return to. We carry this thin veneer of joy and peace, of Christmas spirit, but underneath, many of us are running a little hot. We've got parties and lists and lights and smells and candles and trees and toys and family and food, and it never ends. It's overwhelming. Our weekends are full and our evenings are full, and Man, it doesn't seem like joy and peace. It seems like anxiety. 
seems like stress. It seems like expectations. It seems like trying to impress people often. And that's not only true each Christmas. It's true for us in this particular season, as many of us are trying to figure out what it means to return from this weird pandemic season, what it means to go back to work. What are the things that we're going to prioritize? How are we going to live? And our culture every year keeps telling us, do this. Right after Halloween, November 1st, our culture says, here is what the next two months are going to look like. Here's a beautiful family or person wearing a delightful product that if you purchase or you put in your life, then you'll have joy and peace. And we obsess over building wish lists. We obsess over getting people things. We obsess over this season that says having the right stuff will give us real lasting peace. But December 26th rolls around and we realize, oh, this stuff won't last. And yet we keep doing it again and again. November 1st, every year it comes around, we look right over Thanksgiving and we say, get all of this stuff again. We keep listening to our culture. Do you guys know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And yet every year our culture says, this is what Christmas looks like. And so I think it's worth asking for this community of people who say we have a different Lord than our culture, that say we submit to a different person in the person of Jesus, I think it's helpful to ask a reflective question that I want to just be in our hearts and our minds over the next few weeks. How will you, how will we, return to the Christmas season this year? What are our priorities going to be? How are we going to fill our time and our energy? How are we going to give our money? How will we return to Christmas this year? And thankfully, we get some evidence of a question like that in this amazing library of texts called the Bible. It's in the book of Malachi, and the ancient Israelites are asking a similar question. How will we return? And Malachi gives them a fascinating answer. He tells them that returning to the Lord and orienting their lives around the Lord, that's where they can find real, lasting joy and peace. And so we're going to learn from that message today. If you have a Bible, open in it with me to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of your Old Testament. If you were reading it like he was Italian, it'd say Malachi, but it's not Malachi. It's Malachi. It's three short chapters. We're going to have the text up on the screen for you here as well. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now skipping to verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall I return? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Growing up, I remember being taught a lot of the big, epic Bible stories plagues and the floods and the battles and the kings, all of these stories. And even if you weren't raised in the church, you probably know some of those, right? They've kind of leaked their way out into our culture. But I don't remember being taught a certain particular story that actually is a huge part of this biblical narrative. It's the story of the exile. This is one that was skipped over, and I understand for many reasons why. It's kind of a downer. It's not like a nice, upbeat story. And many times, you can't just unpack this nice, neat moral lesson. And yet the exile is a central part of this biblical narrative. Understanding the exile and understanding what it signifies and the themes that are there, it's huge for understanding who Jesus is and what this whole story really looks like. And so I want to take some time to explore this story. That's 
uh, near to what Malachi is writing here at this point in Scripture. So let's rewind the start of this story, the start of this incredible cosmic history in the Bible. We learn that God creates a good world for life and flourishing and then creates humans to be partners with him in that. That's what it means to be human, to partner with God to bring life and flourishing in the world. And humans decide, all right, I see that, but I kind of wanted to find life on my own terms. I think I might have a better path towards life and flourishing. And so humans decide to go their own way. And the result of that, since they leave the source of life in God, means bringing death and destruction and decay into the world. And the Bible continues to unfold some of those things. But God, wanting to still bring life and flourishing, says, I'm going to redeem what has been broken here. I'm going to resolve what has been broken here. So he creates another partnership with humans. It's called a covenant in our Bible. It's with the nation of Israel. And covenants in the ancient world involved an agreement that two parties would make. If this party did this, then this party did this. And God said, I will bring redemption and restoration. All you have to do is partner with me. All you have to do is love me and love others. That's the crux of the covenant that we get in this text. And Israel says, great, sounds awesome. We will do this redemptive and restorative work in the world with you. How do you think they did? Somebody said bad. Yes, miserable. Most of our Old Testament is evidence after evidence of Israel's failure to partner with God to bring life into the world. And actually, what we learn is that they often do the exact opposite, and it keeps getting worse and worse in their story. Eventually, Israel splits into two nations because they can't hang with each other anymore. Israel and Judah become this nation, and both of those nations become oppressive in their own right. They undermine the very thing that they were called to do in their partnership with God, and the whole national consciousness becomes so distant from who God is that there's really no semblance of life anywhere. That's what we learn when the exile comes along. Because they were an oppressive empire, this is the cycle of oppression that we often see throughout history, this oppressive empire of Judah and of, of Israel, they end up getting overtaken by other oppressive empires. Kind of weird how that happens. Violence begets more violence. Oppression begets more oppression. And soon, they get ripped from their nation and scattered all across the Middle East. I've got a cool video. Uh, a friend of mine, David, was really excited about this. It's a time lapse. So you can see what this looked like in the ancient world. So Judah is down in the left corner here. It's a little yellow spot. You can see all these empires shifting and moving, and then you've got this big maroon part that's the Babylonian Empire. Now, Judah has turned red, and you'll see soon that Judah disappears. The Babylonian Empire takes them over, and when they disappear, they are scattered all across the Babylonian Empire. They're ripped from their homes. And when that happens, we call this period of Israel's history, Judah's history, the exile because they have been exiled from their home. The place where God was going to bring redemption and restoration, well, it's been torn apart. And so now they're all over the ancient world wondering, is God still at work? I see all this brokenness. I see all this oppression. I see all this pain around me. Is God still here? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. And then after a few decades, they're given an opportunity to return home. They're given an opportunity to come back to their homeland and partner with God again. And the nice little wrap-up to this story would be that they do, right? They come back, they realize the error of the ways, they realize the oppression that they've caused, they realize how they've uh, forsaken the partnership that they're supposed to have with God, and they change their ways. But they don't. They return to the same corrupt, oppressive habits that they had previously. And that's where our boy Malachi comes in. 
Malachi is the prophet who's looking around Judah. His word literally means messenger, that word we get in this text, messenger. Malachi is the messenger. He's communicating to these people all of the ways that they are failing to partner with God again. And there is a bunch of stuff. It reads like a diss track. Those of you that are, are rap fans will know. A diss track is when one artist just tears down another artist bit by bit, all of the ways that they're insufficient in some form or another. That's what Malachi is doing for the nation of Judah. He first calls out the religious leaders. He says they have disdain for God. They don't care for God. They don't prioritize God. They don't even think God's really working anymore. And that leaks down into the religious community. Religious practices became indifference for people, sacrifices and the like. They stopped giving to the religious establishment, so the temple was decaying. And in the ancient world, it wasn't just about giving to a religious establishment. When you did that, that money was used to care for the, the priests who cared for the people, and it was used to care for the poor and the needy in the community. And so giving to the religious establishment wasn't just to keep the nice building together, it was to care for the people around you. So if you didn't give to them, then you were showing neglect for those people. If you didn't partner with the temple in that time, then you were neglecting the poor and the needy and the outcast. There's a good quote from a scholar named Elizabeth Actemeyer that summarizes this in language that we can understand well. She says this, the coins in the offering plate cost them nothing. Their discards for the poor, the remnants of their time, the grudging gifts of their talents, worship became a perfunctory, sometimes tiresome service, or at best, a sleepy duty ineffective to change or touch anything in the worshiper's hearts and lives. Strong words for what has happened to Judah. But it doesn't stop there. Malachi also calls them out for adultery and calls them out for divorce. The men of the community have failed to care for the women in their lives. Now, this time, a divorced woman, that would be well, the, really the lowest rung on the social ladder. If you divorced a woman, you were functionally leaving her out to dry in the ancient world. And men were doing that over and over. They were divorcing women for really no reason, just because they saw somewhere else they wanted to go or someone else they wanted to be with. Or they just cheat on them outright. Women were not being protected at this time by the men of the society. And finally, Malachi says that they're also abusing the immigrant, the foreigner in their midst. They're not caring for them as God longs to care for them. They're neglecting to pay their day laborers. They're overlooking the poor and the needy. It's just one punch after another. Judah keeps getting hit by all of the ways that they failed to partner with God. This is the same old nation. They've neglected God's way of life, and they brought death and destruction. And that trends, well, it continues for us today. Many of us like to distance ourselves from all of the evil in the world, but the reality is we participate in the same sorts of dynamics. We have all been called to partner with God, and we've all failed in some way or another. Our hearts have gone astray. We were made to love God and to love others man, do we fail often. Just look at the last couple years, right? It's been a hard, hard season. And remember how things were right at the start of shutdown? We all kind of isolated, and then we were allowed to come out of our houses a little bit. Do you remember what people did? You guys remember? They flooded grocery stores, emptied the shelves to protect themselves. They didn't consider, well, how do I help my neighbor effectively? What do I do for the people who really are struggling in this season? They say, I'm going to get stuff for me and mine. I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to focus on my interests. And then over the next couple years, we've had debates about whether masks should be mandated or not. Right? And those debates rarely revolve around the question, how do we love our neighbor best? 
They revolve more around what political ideology do I want to oppose or support. We have politicized uh, well, something that is supposed to be about caring for people. And then we've come into an election where you get to choose one candidate and despise the other candidate in their party. That was the choice that we were given. And that has wreaked hatred and division all over our world. There's a crazy study I found uh, from the University of Virginia done in the last month and a half or so. So this is after the election. They found that 75% of the people polled here, 75% of Americans, find members of the opposite political party to be a clear and present danger to them and to their safety. Three out of four Americans view members of the opposite political party as an enemy to be opposed, not as a neighbor to be loved. Three out of four. That's astounding. That's the water that we're swimming in in our culture. We've forgotten the call to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we view our neighbors as our enemies. And it's easy for us, sitting in this room at church on Sunday, to think, oh, man, yeah, it's really bad out there. Real, real bad. Like that, it's a good thing we're in here, right? Friends, it can be just as corrupt in the church. We fail to partner with God here as well. I've got a question. I want to hear your guys' feedback on this because this number also surprised me. Uh, I, I want to hear from you guys. What do you think the average, or let's see, how many uh, regular churchgoers do you think give to their church on a regular basis? Some of you guys might know this because I talked about this in my class because uh, it struck me. So you guys can't, you can't, don't be cheaters. How many, <laughs> how many people who regularly go to church report regularly giving to that church in America? What do you guys think? Give me a percentage, number. 25? 35? Nice, a little more confidence. 33? All right, so kind of low, not a lot of confidence. According to a 2018 study, 5%. 5% of people who regularly go to church also say they regularly give to that church to support the ministry of that church and the care of their neighbors through that church. Five. There's a recent Barna study that was released talking about how Christians create spiritual conversations in their lives. And only 13% of Christians affirm that they have regular spiritual conversation with their families or their neighbors. 13%. Not much better. These are the people who say they know Jesus. These are the people who say, I am close to the Lord, and I show up to church, and I do the church things, and 13% of them say, I actually talk about it with people. I actually allow it to sink into my life in some way. Only 25% of Americans volunteered in charitable organizations in 2016. Might be even less than that today, and Christians weren't much better. If you want to know how we are partnering with God to bring life and flourishing into the world, just look at our money, our time, and our energy. Look at where we prioritize all of those things, and you will find out if we're partnering, if we're loving God and loving others. The same lack of partnership with God that characterized Judah in Malachi's day, it characterizes us today as well. Rather than loving God and his image bearers, we've seen them as enemies to be opposed. We focus on ourselves. And when we do this, we exacerbate the same problems that are happening outside these walls, friends. This is why the world looks at the church and says hypocrites. Because the world is looking at the church and seeing a mirror to themselves. And it might have some nice gold religious plating on the outside, but it looks exactly the same. Same priorities. All right, we thoroughly bummed out 
in here? Yeah? Nice. Okay. Now, a couple notes I want to bring up here that have to do with prophetic messages like this. First, I look around this room, and I see people who I know love Jesus Christ, who I know love their neighbors. In this room right here, I think we have a ton of people that are undermining the very trends we see in the church at large. I think this community has potential to do incredible things, to reverse a lot of what's going on in our world today. I don't bring these stats up to condemn you. I bring these stats up to encourage you that we need a new witness, and this church can be the place where that happens. This right here can be a place that loves God and loves others with our time, with our money, with our energy, with every part of who we are. We can change what's going on in our world in this little community. So don't hear this as a condemnation, friends. Hear this as an encouragement because, man, all of these faces, so, so many of you just long for the life that Jesus has and you long for others to have that life as well. This community can change these trends. And second, I also bring up this prophetic critique because the prophets never just stop with critique. It's an important part of the prophets. The prophets critique what's wrong in order to point us towards hope, towards healing. That's the whole point of the prophetic message. It's never just to call out what's broken and be cynics and stand back. It's to call out what's broken so that we can clearly identify it and then change the things that need to be changed in our lives. The prophet's job is to prompt in the people a mode of thinking and a mode of living that returns them to God and counteracts the broken parts of culture. Malachi's critique in this book, they're intended, this is intended, to show us where the nation has strayed from God and then chart the way that they can return to God and change. And so the prophetic message is always filled with conviction and with hope, with guilt and with the path for redemption. That's the story that we're getting here, and that's what we read in Malachi 3. He doesn't just stop with critique in chapters 1 and 2. What we read together is his path towards hope. It starts in chapter 3, verse 1 that we read together. It begins with God's action, what God has done. We're told that God will send a messenger to prepare the way. That word prepare is a, kind of an interesting one culturally. Uh, it was used to describe how someone would go out in front of a king or a royal person in a town to announce that king's arrival. And they'd clear the way. And they'd make sure that people's hearts and minds were prepared for the arrival of that king. They'd say, hey, do these things in your life so that you can be ready for the king's arrival. And so this messenger that Malachi's talking about, they're going to be the one that points everybody to the true way of life, that reminds everybody of the partnership that they're supposed to have with God, so that when God arrives, they're ready to just keep rolling. They're ready to be a part of the redemption that God's bringing. And then following that messenger, we're told that the Lord himself will come. And that Lord is going to bring redemption and restoration, peace and healing and justice. And Malachi says, we can know this is coming. We, you can bank that this is going to happen because of the character of the Lord. In verse 6, he cites the character of the Lord. And earlier in Malachi, in chapter 1, he mentions that the Lord's character is love. That is the primary attribute of who God is. And so since God is loving and since God longs for life and not death, we can rely on his character to bring healing to the world. That's the basis that Malachi gives us. And guys, I stand up here every week, and sometimes I feel like I say the same things over and over. And sometimes I think, oh, they know this. They know that God is loved. But we need to hear this over and over because we have all sorts of pictures of God that can creep in. 
Friends, God is not some distant judge with a long white wig and stringy beard with a gavel waiting to smite you. That's not the God of the scriptures. The God of the scriptures only wants life. He only wants to redeem and restore what has been broken. God is always responding to our rejections and wrongdoings with grace, with love, with invitation to a new sort of life. And he longs for every part of this world to be healed. That's who God is. And so we can bank that that peace and justice is going to come because nothing can stop that sort of love. And here's what's wild. What Malachi said is going to happen has actually happened. Spoiler alert. This entire season of Advent is focused on the fact that what Malachi said was going to happen has come true. God has come to redeem and restore all things. Fast forward in this story to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Here's the words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet. And he's about to quote Malachi right here. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. That's the messenger that Malachi was talking about. He's come in a dude named John who showed up and said to the people, turn back to God, love God and love your neighbor again because God is coming and you're gonna wanna be a part of his redemption and restoration. You're not gonna wanna miss it. It's gonna bring peace and justice in your lives and in the world. Start reorienting your life towards that God because it's gonna change everything. And if John showed up, if the messenger showed up, who do we know is coming? The Lord. God, the Lord arrives in a Palestinian carpenter named Jesus. And Jesus' arrival signifies what Malachi was talking about here. The Lord comes in the person of Jesus to restore everything that is broken. Which means when we read about Jesus healing, he's not just doing something nice for people. He's showing us that the love of the Lord has come to heal us. When Jesus elevates the poor and the humble, he's not just making a social statement. He's showing us that the love of the Lord comes to those who are most in need. When Jesus calls out injustice in religious leaders and in culture, he's not just critiquing corrupt authority. He's showing us that the love of the Lord comes to bring justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. That's what the Lord does. Jesus' arrival is not just that of a nice moral teacher, you guys. It's the arrival of the Lord himself, the once-for-all statement that this is who God is and this is what God does. You guys, we have ample evidence to show that we can't resolve all of these things in our world on our own. Just read a history book. We've been trying for a long time, and the world is just as broken as it's always been. And yet we're not without hope in this room because we believe God's character longs to heal the world, and that character has come in the person of Jesus. And when that God arrives in our lives, when we orient our lives around that God, we become participants in life and flourishing as we were made to be at the beginning of things. And so that brings us to the next part of Malachi's hope, our response. In verse 7, we're told to return to the Lord, 
the nation of Judah, told to return to the Lord, and the Lord will return to us. Christians have a fancy theological word for this called repentance, but it really just means turning around, pulling a 180 in your life. You've been walking a certain direction. We all have. We've been walking into death and destruction and bringing pain into our lives. What we hear here is to turn around, to return to loving God and loving others, to change every part of our lives so that we're prepared for when Jesus comes. This is our prerogative as the church, friends. This is our response to the coming of Jesus. The church should always be the place that is the first to acknowledge where they've messed up. There's a problem that the church sometimes has. Pride can creep in and we don't like to acknowledge where we messed up. The church should always be the first place where that happens because we know that when we do that, we return to the Lord, we reorient ourselves and start to bring real life into the world. We are the embodiment of who Jesus is as the church. That's our job, which means we need to turn back to that Jesus in every part of our lives when we notice we're out of whack, when we notice we're out of line. In this Advent season, it's our job to express this reality of Jesus' arrival, redemption and restoration, and what that means for all of us. We embody that over the next few weeks. And that brings us to the rhetorical question here in verse 7. The nation of Judah, so corrupt, so far from serving God and loving God, that they're like, how? How do we return to God? They're so far down the line that they can't see God on the other side. They need Malachi's help to direct them to remind them what needs to change. And Malachi continues through the rest of this letter to give them things to do. And all of these things have to do with their money and their time and their energy, how they're filling their days and their weeks and their months. He's saying, in all of these categories, turn back to love God and love others. And here we are in the 21st century asking ourselves the same question today. Every year, we're told by culture to have certain priorities and especially in Christmas, we're told by culture to have certain priorities in the next few weeks. And we also are told in this book to prioritize what God is doing in Christ's arrival. And so in this Christmas season, church, how will we return? Will we return by prioritizing our own needs or prioritizing the needs of others? Will we return to a focus on getting or focus on giving? Will we return to consumerism and materialism, or will we care for the poor and the needy and the overlooked? Will we return to self-sufficiency and doing life on our own and doing things in isolation, or loving in community with one another and allowing others to love us? See, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus' arrival, it's the ultimate partnership of the human and divine. It's what we have failed to do. Jesus has come and done it. It's the completion of the story, which means that if we're people who receive Jesus in our lives, that means we get to embody that reality that Jesus brought, that divine and human partnership. That's our job. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, Christians, then we have to prioritize his life and peace and justice in everything we do. We're the ones who return to what God has called us to be from the start. There's a great quote from a Spanish nun that lived in the 16th century. Her name was Teresa of Avila. This is so good, you guys. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. 
Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. We don't have to return to the same old thing this year, friend. We don't have to buy into the same hustle that Arnold has in Jingle All the Way. Jesus has come so that we can live differently, so that we can embody selflessness and peace and love in this season. And in reorienting our lives around him, in changing all of our priorities, what we find is that God starts to bring us back to what we were made for in the beginning. We just have one question to answer. How will we return? Let's pray.